Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know, and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we're happy to welcome you to Matthew Lamel co-founder and managing partner of Blockchain Co-Investors, a blockchain venture fund of funds investing in the leading pure play blockchain VCs. As well as this, he's also managing partner of Kiretsu, which is one of the biggest and most active angel networks in the world. We hope you'll enjoy. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs are in Europe and maybe even invest with them? Pre-register for our newsletter on theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Matthew, hi. Welcome to EUVC. We are thrilled to have you today. How's everything? Oh, it's fantastic and I really appreciate that you've invited me to participate with your audience today. It's our pleasure. Really looking forward to it. Matthew, I want to start talking about Keretsu, of which you are the managing partner, which is an angel investor network with a real global coverage. And maybe for our listeners, I'd love for you to kind of just give us a quick overview of what it is. But maybe what's even most interesting, most of our listeners are emerging managers. And I guess you are full with best practices for early stage investing. So I'd love to start on that note. Well, it's just going back after I had finished my first career as a senior partner of large consulting firms, McKinsey, Booz, Carney, Monitor. I wanted to be an early stage tech investor here in Silicon Valley, where I've been for 35 years. And I tried to do it all by myself. And I quickly learned that it's very hard to be an early stage tech investor by yourself. There's so many different aspects to due diligence and evaluation and, and supporting early stage companies that it eventually brought me to the angel groups and I joined a couple. I met with many of them, but I decided to join Koretsu and Band of Angels. I wasn't the founder of Koretsu. Randy Williams had found it back in 2000. But I joined fairly early on, and I really enjoyed what they do. I became a managing partner in Kretsu Capital with Nathan McDonald and Randy Williams. And mostly through Randy and the chapter president's hard work, it's now the world's largest angel group, the most active early stage investing organization with chapters around the world. I know that you're in Portugal and in Denmark. The closest chapter to Denmark is in Sweden, in Stockholm. And the closest to Portugal, there's a couple in Spain, in Madrid, and I believe still in Barcelona as well. So uh, it is a global organization, and it's trying to help promising early stage CEOs and entrepreneurs get funded. I'm super happy we just got that story on Kairetsu because not everyone knows how big a player it is, but it really is someone you should know in this ecosystem. Matthew, maybe if we should tease out some of your key learnings as an angel investor and also 
some of the things that you're helping give to the newcomers to the uh, angel network? What would those be to early investors? We've actually written books on this, Alison and I, and you can find them everywhere, but I won't go through all of that other than to say there are some best practices for early stage investing, and they're not very complicated. They're hard to put into practice, and most people forget them. If we're talking about early stage technology investing, it's an area of innovation and change and ambition and optimism where, in fact, most opportunities and most companies will fail. And so the failure rate is higher than the success rate for venture capitalists and for angel investors. The failure rate is above 50%, 60% perhaps. percent, And only about 10% of the companies that angels and VCs back will get to substantial exits, 5x and better. And that will drive about 90% of the capital they get back. So that has some implications. The first is you have to be highly diversified. So if you're going to be an early stage investor, you should be diversified because it's a hit-driven business and a lot of your investments will fail. The second is you must do deep due diligence. And this is one of the reasons why, for many people, you have to be part of a group. If you're a VC and there's two or three GPs, you're going to have to figure out how to tap into a network of due diligence experts. If you're an angel, you're going to want to collaborate with other angels because no one of us can do technical due diligence, operational due diligence, legal due diligence, and so on and so on. There's just too many aspects of due diligence. And all of the evidence shows when early stage investors do a lot of due diligence, they get a much higher return than if they just you know, invest sight unseen. So that's the next one. After that, it's about uh, negotiating the best deal you can get. A lot of the value get, does get captured at the beginning, so you have to be very sensitive to the term sheet, the negotiation and the value that you're receiving. And obviously, uh, smart entrepreneurs understand that funding is a multi-stage process. And they don't necessarily want the highest valuation. They want the best investors. And they've got to manage their dilution over time in a way that can make the company, you know, set it up for success. There's no point raising a lot of money at the beginning at a high valuation and then not being able to raise any more money later because no one else wants to come in because your valuation is too high. And then the fourth is after the deal is done, how do you, as a group of investors, how do you roll up your sleeves and make the company more successful? And what expertise, value added, can you bring to the table? Most entrepreneurs are not going to succeed by themselves. It takes a village. You know, it takes a whole group of people helping them. And the really good entrepreneurs are very good at tapping into their backers and getting doors opened, relationships, access, expertise, and the best investors bring that to the table. It's a two-way dialogue. Passive investors, this is not really a good space. You've got to be active, hands-on, and value-added to be a good early-stage investor. We're seeing more and more VC funds going down into pre-seed. So that means the competition between angels and VCs is actually getting fiercer and fiercer. I would like to hear your perspective on why should entrepreneurs go for VC funding rather than a Kairetsu or Kairetsu rather than VC funding? What is yes. the dilemma there typically? How do you talk to founders about this? There is a bit of a misconception on this. And in fact, we've recorded a webinar that you can find at our blockchain co-investors and fifth era sites called Raising Early Stage Capital 
and there's another one called Mastering Early Stage Investing. But people think there's only one business process, that there's only one ecosystem, and it begins with the founders, then it's friends and family, then it's angels, and then it's VCs, and companies move down that path. Actually, there are at least two completely separate ecosystems for early stage technology. There's the angel ecosystem, where most companies get funded by individuals, angels, and maybe family offices, and they get to their exits, which may be modest in size, or they become viable but small businesses. And that is a world of relatively modest investment that leads to relatively modest outcomes in most cases. Now, the VC ecosystem is separate, and that typically also begins with founder capital, friends and family and angels. But at some point, a VC gets involved. They bring a lot more capital to bear and they try and ramp up the company faster. They're looking for a much bigger exit. But actually, the failure rate is very similar. And in fact, the overall return to investors is very similar. In fact, researchers from Harvard and MIT and others have actually suggested that the angel ecosystem return is higher than the venture capital ecosystem return. But the big difference is the VCs are putting a lot of capital to work and they're scaling companies very fast. That's their goal. Whereas the angels are much more efficient and want their companies to be much more efficient in their use of capital. So these are two separate ecosystems. Now, what confuses people is that some of the deals cross over. There's almost no VC deal that didn't have angels involved. Very rarely does a VC-backed company move over to the angel ecosystem. So it's a one-way flow. But I would say if you're an entrepreneur listening you're almost certainly going to start off with angels and you're going to hope to get a VC, but most of you will not get a VC. And that's not a bad thing. It just means that your outcomes and your trajectory is going to have to be a different one. So there really isn't that much competition. You'd be surprised here in America, at least, which is what I know best. The angels are backing about 80,000 companies every year in America. And the VCs are doing about 10,000 rounds but of those 10,000 rounds, only three or 4,000 of them are initial rounds. Everything else is a follow-on round. I do believe that the ecosystem in Europe is a bit different in the sense that typically you see more competition because you see rounds with fewer players. I would imagine that you're also seeing that more and more in the Valley. You know, the VC's firms moving down, leading them to compete with the angels around the same deals. Actually, I'm going to say something different because, as you know, after Koretsu, I founded with Alison uh, Blockchain Co-Investors yeah. and today with the world's largest blockchain venture fund of funds. And in blockchain and increasingly in early stage technology, the funding is not being done by institutions, venture funds, or by traditional angel investors. It's being done by communities of people who are supporting companies in a variety of ways, obviously tokenized projects, yeah. Yeah. DeFi, NFT platforms, things of that nature, and also on crowdfunding platforms like AngelList or Cedars. So I think that the world's biggest venture capitalists are mostly mid and late stage investors. They don't do a lot of seed investing. We have, as you're suggesting, we have seen the rise of micro VC funds who are focused on early stage. But I think we've seen a much faster growth of angel investors and now of community-based investors 
So if anything, the traditional venture model is getting to be a smaller piece of the puzzle, not in terms of the capital raised. So that's confusing to people. The, the rounds, the late stage rounds are so very large yeah. that the capital deployed by the VCs is going up and up and up. But the number of deals that the VCs are doing as a percentage of all of the deals is actually going down. And by the time you get into things like foundational technology, operating systems, protocols, platforms, distributed platforms, none of it's being backed by traditional VCs. It's all being backed by a new breed of small funds like blockchain pure play funds yeah. or by communities. That's very interesting to me. Very interesting indeed. David and I would, of course, love to talk to you more about the community play there. We're focusing a lot on community in, uh, in, in our world of the European VC, of course. So maybe would you talk a bit more about that, both, of course, in the blockchain world, it's often done by token investing, but outside of the blockchain world as well, if you're familiar with that as well, I would describe that as PV formation trend. So just stepping back a little bit, the traditional venture model exists for several different reasons. One of them is it's hard to find good deals. The second is it takes a lot of due diligence and expertise. And the third is that people with money want to put their money through professional management. And that is sort of what the venture model began on. You know, they are by definition managing other people's money in a professional disciplined approach depending upon their industry, the stage, the sector, and so on that they've chosen to focus on. A number of things have changed in the last 20 years. The discovery of deals has become more efficient because of digital communication. It's possible for you and I to be speaking right now in real time, but if you're an entrepreneur, you can pitch an investor around the world using a digital platform, which you couldn't do in the past. So access and discovery have been enabled by technology. Due diligence, which is still a very difficult topic, has also been enabled with digital means. You have to be very careful about who you trust when you look at due diligence, and we believe you have to be an active participant in due diligence but obviously the days of you sending out two people you know a manager and an analyst to meet the company and interview them those are behind us now so that's another change that's occurred and then as i've already hinted at investing platforms have begun to move digital so we've seen the rise of crowdfunding platforms like cedars and angel list But there's many others, CoinList, Republic. There's many of them now, uh, Link2, which is one that we helped create. And then we have the notion of the actual investment vehicle also changing. So changing from a paper-based contract where you get a common share certificate to being a digitally enabled investment form where perhaps it's a digital certificate, which of course is what a token is. A token is simply a blockchain-based digital certificate that represents ownership of something and some other rights perhaps. So what I'm telling you here is that investing is moving to a digital model and that digital model is digital in every respect. Access, communication, due diligence, investment decision-making, the platforms that we use and the forms of the investment that we make are all shifting to a digital model. And when that occurs, it changes the playing field 
for how you choose to participate. Where I began this question of, you know, the traditional venture model was created for a world where all of those digital advantages didn't exist, right? So that's why we have venture funds, three GPs, two associates, an operations person managing a few hundred million of other people's money. And that is now shifting to platforms, to take AngelList as an example. AngelList does maybe three or 4,000 rounds per year. They have tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of active investors on the platform. I don't know what the latest numbers are. And I've seen statistics that maybe as much as 50% or more of all of the VC-backed companies have raised capital through AngelList. So as an investor, clearly something's changed. You don't just write a check and become an LP in a fund. You can participate in different ways. And then, of course, you have to figure out, are you a good investor and what is the right approach for you and what's a good fit for you as an individual? So I said all of that because it's very important to see that land shift, if you will, that transformation that's occurring in early stage investing for you to really appreciate why tokenized projects and new digital first investment platforms are actually so important. And I do think coming back to the two of you, people who have communities and strong relationships now have more opportunities than they used to have. In the olden days, you raised a lot of capital because you knew some pension funds, some family offices and some institutions. Well, actually today, you can back companies just because you have a large community of interest so long as they trust you and you do the right thing by them. It's funny, we talked to Ayrton John the other day who said that one of the guys he had helping him raise his fund said, I can't believe Ayrton, when I'm raising for you, it takes a year to raise 10 million euros. When I'm raising for an SPV, I t- it takes seven days <laughs> to raise the same amount. Yeah, um, that's strange, isn't it? That, that's sort of a strange phenomena. It has to do with the efficiency of markets and the asymmetries of information. So in the public markets, they're highly efficient. Everyone has roughly the same information and trillions of dollars move hands. Alison, my partner, um, was the former CFO of BGI BlackRock, the world's largest asset management company. And they manage whatever they manage now, eight or nine trillion dollars, the world's biggest investor. And huge capital flows occur. Well, up the other end of the spectrum, early stage technology, it's very inefficient and there's huge information asymmetries. So it's actually very hard to invest. But when you look at the returns, of course, the returns you know, reflect this reality. We were taught at business school and in finance that you can only get superior returns if you have inefficient markets with information asymmetries. So we get superior returns, very high returns in early stage technology, and we get relatively low returns in the public markets. But the money goes to the public markets, not to the private markets. And that's a very strange thing to me. you know. And I think that's beginning to shift. More capital is flowing into private investments, but it's still a rounding error compared to all of the public equities and fixed income where you know, trillions of dollars are being invested and they're basically getting on a risk-adjusted basis almost no return. I want to come back to uh, the digital revolution that we're talking about, which has affected venture investing 
generally speaking, or tech investing, generally speaking, my feeling is that it has actually significantly lowered the barriers of entry to anyone that wants to start doing angel investments and direct investments, and that we've seen the tickets going down of the minimal commitment that an investor needs to do. That is exciting for many reasons, but it's also... I would argue, maybe slightly worrying for other reasons. <laughs> I love to have your take. You know, when you think of the democratization to some extent of early stage tech investing, what excites you and what worries you about it? Yes, thanks, David. Well, I'm agreeing with you, but it sort of depends on how you look at this. It's that old cliche about the elephant and the four blind men, each of whom touches a different part of the elephant and has a yeah. different takeaway. So yeah. <laughs> there's 8 billion people in the world. Why are 7 billion, 990 million of them not allowed to invest in early stage technology? Yeah. How can that be fair? How can that be right? Why do we protect the right to invest and only give it to a handful of people who are called accredited investors here in America? That doesn't feel right because we know that most of the world's value and wealth are being created in mm -hmm. new emerging innovation-based industries and businesses and technologies that should be democratized yeah. and shared. So that's one view. A second view is uh, the world is full of bad people and only sophisticated people can defend themselves against bad people. That's the sort of patriarchal or matriarchal view that says governments know best and we need to protect everyone from the bad guys. So in practice, we'll simply simplify that down to 7 billion people are too stupid to be investors and only the really smart people should be allowed to invest. Well, I don't think that technology and due diligence sophistication are correlated with the size of your bank account, actually. I think, for example, digitally native young people who live and breathe new technology probably understand it much better than 60-year-old pension fund managers that maybe have never used these technologies. So I don't think it's necessarily correlated that sophistication comes with the size of the capital that you manage. So that's the second view. A third view is that communities, there's a wisdom of crowd effect. So that basically argues that if you have a large community and if the community is doing their research and their work, the market should be more efficient and the right decision should occur. So three venture capitalists in an office coming up with an investment decision, why would they make a better decision than 100,000 people collaborating on a technology platform? You know, that's another argument that would argue that we should democratize and open up investing to a broader community. So those are three different views. I'm not sure. We're in a time of transition. So we don't yet know what the new model of investing and private investing is going to end up being. I know it's not going to be the same as the old model. So change is definitely occurring. But I think all three of those lenses that I just shared, and there's more I could have gone down the path, yeah, but, yeah. but those three, they're all valid. Capital attracts bad actors and bad practices. If you have money and you say you want to invest it, unfortunately, some people will try and steal your money and you need to do a good job of protecting yourself. Uh, you need to do good due diligence and maybe government should have a role in protecting you too. But I think that the world is going to change and I don't think 7 
$1,990,000,000 million people in the future will be told you cannot invest in technology. That isn't the right answer. That is not the right answer. Specifically when, you know, we have so many big issues still to be solved and tech is one of the biggest ways that we can solve it. But let me maybe uh, put you in the spot and ask, okay, but what about within Kairetsu, you know, with all these changes and all these new things happening, how are you guys thinking about this and, and what are you changing, improving, adding, adapting? So Kairetsu is a global network of angels that collaborate together through a chapter-driven model. And before COVID, that did actually mean that most of the meetings were happening in person each month. And so if you're an entrepreneur, you tended to go to your local chapter. So as I mentioned before, if you're an entrepreneur in Portugal, you'd probably have to go to a Madrid chapter meeting and you might say, well, that's a different country, but... It's, it's a five-hour drive, yeah. so it's fine. <laughs> but you know, the world is a big place and the physical model isn't very scalable. So even though Koretsu has 55 or 60 chapters, it couldn't be everywhere. Well, COVID suddenly has shifted that with everyone going virtual. And in fact, last year, Koretsu did more deals than ever, over 300, I believe, in a technology-based virtual model. Now, I already mentioned that AngelList did over 3,000. So you get a sense of the orders of magnitude here. These are a large investor communities. And I think that across the whole angel movement globally, people are putting a lot of energy into trying to figure out how do we transition the best practices of early stage investing to a digital virtual model. And it isn't that easy, by the way. Due diligence is actually very hard to only do it in a digital way. There are some things where you may have to go and look to be sure. Are there really 30 people working in the call center? Uh, yeah. Or is that a true statement? How would you know if you don't go and check? Today, I spend much more of my time on blockchain co-investors. So in the blockchain space, we've moved very, very fast down this path. So the tokenization of projects, the creation of crypto assets, the establishment of huge virtual communities of supporters have allowed tens of billions and hundreds of billions of dollars of capital to change hands. And I think that's accelerating. And I know... Not all of the offerings have been well managed, but I think governments are going to explore and understand what we've just been talking about, that if the future in investing is digital and if early stage technology is driving GDP and jobs growth for every country in the world, then governments want more of it. And if it can be funded through digital means, then that's probably beneficial to countries and governments and their people. So rather than stifle it, with regulations that were created 100 years ago, you have to migrate the regulations yeah. forward. But that takes time, and you can't do it overnight. Most jurisdictions, uh, you know, certainly the ones in Portugal and Denmark and in Switzerland and London and Paris and Frankfurt and Berlin, they're all beginning to shift their rules and regulations to stimulate this type of investing. But there's a lot of bugs to be ironed out, and we're not there yet. If you look at crypto asset and protocol funding, those are probably more models of what the future of early stage investing are going to look like than the old-fashioned model of, you know, 
three people sit around a table, pull out a contract and create a common stock and sign the contract. That isn't the future of how things get funded. On that note, I think it would be really interesting, Matthew, to have a bit more insights into blockchain co-investors. So what is that about? What's the investment thesis there? What are you guys trying to achieve there? Yeah, thanks for asking. So if I haven't already said it, Alice and I, after our first careers, we transitioned over to being early stage tech investors, internet and fintech. And Alison managed a big private equity firm called Belvedere Capital. I began doing work with the angels like Koretsu and Band of Angels. And we were backing internet, fintech, and digital content companies for about 15 to 20 years. And so these would be sort of software companies, entertainment like video game and virtual world companies, and of course, fintech, payment companies, mobile app, fintech companies, these types of things. And so because of all of that, when we first heard about blockchain in 2012, we probably began to understand it a little quicker than some. I just wrapped up a digital wallet strategy for PayPal as a consultant, 2011, I think that was. And Alison was getting some inbound deals where people were coming to her saying, Bitcoin, this blockchain, that. And we explored it in 2013 And we began to invest in blockchain quite heavily in 2014. So it's been a few years now, eight years, I guess. And along the way, we thought about what our investing strategy should be. And we decided we wanted to be investors in as many of the blockchain projects and companies as possible globally. That is very hard to do as a direct investor. So we decided we'd create a fund of funds And we would be investors in all of the best blockchain VCs globally, or most of them. And that's blockchain co-investors. That's the first thing we do. We're we're a fund-to-fund company. We have our third fund. I'm not allowed to talk very much about the funds on a call like this, because unfortunately, uh, it's accredited only investor. And I'm not allowed to do general solicitation. So all I can say today is our investment strategy is to have a fund of funds. We then also actively co-invest into the emerging category leaders as we see them emerging. And we also have an early stage token investing strategy as well, which is more to do with crypto assets. So blockchain co-investors, easy to find online. We have a website. You can learn more about what we do. But I'm not allowed to tell you a lot more about the specifics on an open broadcast like this. But I think it's fair to say today, you know, we're investors in about 300 or more blockchain companies and projects through our strategy. And we are investors in lots of the names, you know, from Coinbase and Kraken and Ripple and Circle to emerging companies like Securitize and Bitwise and Uphold and Link2 and Brex. We're very active investors in the space. What would be really interesting is to have your views on a more kind of macro perspective of fund of funds investing, right? Yes. It's really interesting to be talking with someone who's so embedded in the angel scene, but also in the fund of funds scene, right? It's so curious. It's so interesting. And maybe... You know, you just shared with us best practices for early stage tech investing. What about best practices for fund of fund investing? You know, what gets you excited? What doesn't get you excited? What have you learned through those eight or nine years almost now? Yes, because of the risk return dynamics and mathematics of early stage tech, you get an exceptionally high expected return, early stage tech may have the highest expected return of any asset category in the world. However, it also is a hit-driven business with a small number of the investments 
generating most of the returns. So you should be highly diversified. The second thing is there is evidence that the returns are skewed with a smaller number of funds persistently getting the better returns and a long tail of funds who underperform. You know, again, academic research shows the early stage venture has one of the highest persistency rates of any category. Persistency is defined as if a fund was in the top quartile in the last period, what's the probability it'll be in the top quartile in the next period with their next fund? And it's 48% for early stage venture. That's one of the highest persistency rates in, of any asset class. So putting all of those things together, you want to be highly diversified, but you want to have your capital in the best funds. And then you want to selectively follow on when you see they're doing the same. And this is sort of an information asymmetry point. If you can see what the best investors are doing, you should be able to make some smart decisions yourself based upon how you see them behaving. But of course, from the outside, you can't see what they're doing. So you have to be inside to be able to see what they're doing, which deals they're putting more capital in, which deals they're not, and so on and so on. As a fund of fund, that's what we worry about. Do we have broad, diversified coverage of blockchain on a global basis, up and down the technology stack and across all of the investment themes? Are we invested in the best venture investors in blockchain, which we are? about 30 of them today. And then we monitor them and we watch them. And if we see, for example, just as an example, if I see that one of them is going into a token, maybe I ignore it. But if I see five of them are all doing seeding of a new protocol, that tells me a lot. And maybe I should try and get an allocation in that situation. So I think the best practices are pretty much the same, but the fund-to-fund model allows me to gain some broad, diversified information asymmetries and advantages that an angel or a VC can't get because the individual angel or the individual VC only sees what they see, whereas a fund-to-fund manager, I get to see what they see at least secondhand. And Alice and I watching and seeing what 30 of the world's best funds are doing in blockchain. And we think that's very important information. The profile of the VCs you back, maybe you can't speak too much to the strategy, but maybe you could speak a bit to best practice for VCs in the blockchain space. What do you like and what don't you like at all? Yeah, thanks for asking that. You can go to blockchainconvestors.com and we have the portfolio on the website. You can click on the funds and see all the funds we're invested in. New areas of technology require deep expertise. And I could be saying that in life sciences or in enterprise software or clean energy or blockchain. General purpose investors cannot be good at everything. And so whilst we have very large general purpose funds, those funds tend to be very good at something else. They're very good at taking mid-stage companies and turning them into public companies, which is a skill set, which is very valuable. But the early stage investor has to be able to do due diligence on technology and entrepreneurs, software developers, and so on in a real detailed way. And that expertise is not easy to find. So for us as a fund of fund, the first questions are, is the general partnership of a fund deep and expert in the area of technology that they say they're focusing on? And within blockchain, there are subsectors. So, you know, uh, 
blockchain protocols, NFT platforms, DeFi, these are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Enterprise applications of distributed ledger technology, they're not all the one thing. They are actually subcategories. And so we're looking at, is the GP of the fund expert in the technologies? Can they do due diligence? Do we believe that they will make smart and discerning decisions? Will they be able to say no as much as they should? Will they be able to make clean and investment decisions without being biased because of other affiliations or involvements or vested interests? Is there evidence they've done it before? Do they have performance? Do they have track record? Have they already made good investments already? I've already mentioned to you that due diligence requires a lot of capability and people and network. So is the fund, does it have some privileged access to knowledge and expertise of other people? Will they really help? Will they really do the job and work? So it's not just three people sitting in an office. It's a really big network of expertise and capability. And then are they the types of people that the best entrepreneurs are going to go to and trust and look for help from? And I think in blockchain specifically, The blockchain entrepreneurs are deep technologists themselves, and they want to raise capital and get the support of people that sort of are like them. I don't imagine that Vitalik Buterin would have wanted to go and meet with uh, pension fund (laughs) senior executives to raise capital. It wouldn't have been a good fit. He raised capital from a lot of people, but people like blockchain capital, Bart and Brad and Spencer and so on, uh, and Alex, they look like and can speak to and are trusted by blockchain entrepreneurs. And blockchain entrepreneurs are a different breed, the really good ones. There are not that many good ones, by the way. It's in the hundreds. It's not in the thousands and thousands. The true blockchain sort of alpha engineers are very hard to find. So those are some thoughts. That's not everything, but those are some thoughts. Tying two themes together here, we started talking about community investing and angel investing and angel clubs. Now we're talking fund of funds. Do you see a role for angel clubs and community investing into fund of funds? Because your thesis here would be very relevant to a lot of angels to get access to. Not so much, not so much. Um, By the time you've built an investor community, And it's not easy, by the way. There's both for the investor and for the community managers, there's a lot of complexity and you've got to be very careful about how you design it. And we can talk more about that if you're interested. But once you've got that community, I'm not sure you need to go through the fund-to-fund model. I think you would probably want to be a direct investor community and you would probably want to enable your activities with technology. So I think you'd be more thinking about can we build something like an angel list, a coin list, a republic, a link to? Can we build that sort of a thing rather than, you know, should I now have an active community? Yeah, adding in the layer. Yeah, yeah, raise a lot of capital and give it to a fund of fund manager. <laughs> our, our investors tend to be family offices, multifamily offices, and very technology savvy, high net worth individuals who have quite a lot of capital and they're wanting to deploy it into blockchain. If I had a big community of, let's say I had a 10,000-person community, and that community really wanted to invest, I think that I should be going direct to some really high-quality projects and companies and speaking to them directly. How can my community get you off the ground? And what value-added can we bring beyond just capital? And how would you reward us if we really brought our weight 
to bear. And I've already said, for most projects and for most startups, the capital is not the most valuable thing. The entrepreneur thinks it is. They think, look, give me $10 million, I can do everything else. But it isn't true, actually. Uh, if someone brings you first revenue, first contract, first large customer, first go-to-market platform, those things are actually much more valuable than the capital. Matthew, we are running out of time, but there's one topic that I was really looking forward to get your thoughts. It's not necessarily directly related to tech investing, but I think you may have some <laughs> connecting comments to it. In preparation for this interview, I ran across the Fifth Era book that you wrote with your partner, Alison. In it, you take us over, you know, the first four eras, I usually described it, and I'm quoting now, which are the hunter-gatherer era, the agrarian era, the mercantile era, and the industrial area. And then you expand a bit on the innovations that you are ushering us into this new fifth era. I'd love for you to share with our listeners, you know, why do you think this is an exciting topic? And, you know, the process of writing a book is often quite enlightening to the authors themselves. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you've retained from the process of writing the book, actually. Yes, thanks for asking that. And in fact, most of what I've spoken about on this interview is really those themes. So... We've actually spent about 30, 35 years of our careers working on the digitization of different industries and businesses. Yeah. And so as a consultant, my clients included, on the one hand, the Googles and the Ebays and Microsofts and PayPals, and on the other, many large established businesses that were trying to figure out what the internet would do to their business and how their business needed to change. And so my whole life, in many respects, my whole business life has been around the shift towards a digitally connected global economy. But the reality is we're only halfway there. And what's beginning to drop now, the second shoe is dropping. We've done a pretty good job on global digital communications but we haven't done a very good job on global digital commerce. And we're now beginning to work on that. So the fifth era is some future state in which the world has a fully connected digital economy. And, you know, we are able to do almost everything we want to do in a digitally and connected way. We're absolutely sure that's where we're heading. And we invest primarily behind those types of opportunities, which internet, fintech, blockchain is really all about this conversion to a global internet of value and the arrival of a truly digital economy. So that is our thesis. There are free books that people can download and read. Uh, the first book we wrote, which has a title, Build Your Fortune in the Fifth Era, was actually written for early stage investors. It's a book that basically just tries to outline the facts and the figures and then the various participation options. Hopefully people, if they read it, they can get a better sense of how they fit in. It's supposed to be an easy read, so it's not a complicated book yeah. to read. Now, you asked what are the pros and cons. I think you asked that question, and that's much more complicated to answer. So <laughs> even though I'm convinced that this is the future direction, I mean, obviously, we all are fearful of the future, and some of the things that we're very comfortable with from today will go away, and we don't know what they'll be replaced by. We hope that they'll be replaced by things that we think are better, but in some cases, we may lose things that we think were valuable and that we really liked about the past. And I think change is inevitable, 
and the trade-offs are becoming more obvious. So we don't have time today to talk about things like privacy and confidentiality and trust and fake v real and other things <laughs> but you know it does concern me it does there are many things that i'm concerned about i'll tell you another thing that concerns me by the way is we have genetically engineered our animals and our crops but i don't know how i feel about genetically modifying human beings and i feel like we're on the verge of that conversation societally and i'm very fearful about that uh, i don't want to be the last non engineered person who is incapable but on the other hand <laughs> i don't want to go into an arms race as a parent or grandparent where you have to genetically engineer your kids just to allow them to participate you know and compete in yeah. society so i just throw that out i was on the faculty of singularity yeah. i'm not sure yeah. i com i'm convinced that we're going to become the borg and sort of sucked into the computer and or matrix or something but i think there is some truth in some of those dystopian images of the future and we have to be very careful about where society heads but at its core blockchain is simply about making commerce efficient effective real time and more fair and democratic and i think it's very beneficial across the board and we're going to get to a much better place with these new internet and fintech technologies applied to commerce and payments and banking and investing and i think that's where we're going to end up matthew we are coming up on the quick fire round but there's something i have to ask you before we've <laughs> talked a lot about the digitization of the economy and the world And to our listeners, Matthew has a very nice British accent, but he's actually based in Silicon Valley. And I have to ask you, as you said before, your family is still in the UK. Will we see you moving back to the UK now that the world is becoming so connected? Or is Silicon Valley still the place to be in your world? Well, it's a great question and it's a complicated question because we're actually dual citizens, Alison and I, and we're husband and wife, by the way, and we are both English, but we both became American and we have been in America longer than we were in England. So we have a foot in both camps. We were able in a prior world to make that work by traveling. And so mm. we would be in Europe every month pretty much the uk we'd go to france switzerland quite a lot uh, you know i've got family members in denmark where yeah. one of you are and i've got a lot of friends in portugal where another one of you <laughs> is and uh, and we were making it work and i was also popping across to hong kong and australia and now the question is we're destroying the climate and my carbon footprint is much higher than it should be That's really the question now um, that I'm grappling with. It's sort of like digitally, we're speaking in real time right now, and we're in three different countries spread around the world. Yeah. How do I feel about maintaining virtual relationships for being physical? And I feel I like to be physical. I like to be in Zug and be in Berlin and be in London. But on the other hand, I don't feel so good about my carbon footprint. So what Alice and I have done I think that everyone needs to do three things. One is reduce your carbon footprint. The second is offset it with clean energy if you can, renewable clean energy. And then the third is if you can't switch to renewable clean energy, at least offset yeah. what remains of your carbon footprint by buying offsets. And in our case, we've done all three. So we are traveling less, which is the biggest driver of our carbon footprint. 
Secondly, we've installed a lot of solar. I've got 20 kilowatt hours on my roof, <laughs> which is a lot more than I need. So I feel like I'm generating a lot of solar for a lot of benefit back to the grid, as well as covering our own energy usage of the house and cars have gone electric and things like that. And then the third one is we've actually bought a lot of offsets to carbon credits, yeah. rainforest carbon credits. So I went down that path because that is at the core of your question to me. Yes, I would like to travel to Europe much more regularly, but I still feel pretty bad about all of the airplane carbon emissions. Yeah. And I don't really know what to do about that. One of the things we've been talking about is whether we should travel less frequently, but spend more time in the destination we go to. So instead of the three-day trip to London, should we do the three-week trip yeah. and only do it once a year instead of 10 times a year? And maybe that's the right answer. So now onwards, we're racing here to the quickfire round. Oh, yes. Three questions, 30 to 60 seconds per each. Are you ready? Sure. Okay, first one. In tech investing, what areas excite you the most that other people don't really feel excited about? Well, I'm going to say blockchain because even though 100 million of us believe it, it's we're the early adopters and there's still yeah. 7 billion people <laughs> that don't have a digital wallet, don't own any crypto. So we're the early adopters and most of the world isn't on board, but they will be. And that's going to be huge. Okay. In building Kairatsu, what's the most important thing you've learned about community building? Well, I would say actually Randy Williams is the person that founded Kairatsu. And I observed that he always put the community first and he really believed in the power and wisdom of the crowd. And if you're going to be a community manager, it's about the community first. And you have to trust that you can build a strong community and you mustn't put your own interests ahead of those of the community. Wise words there. Final one. What can we expect in the future from Matthew Limerell? You know, I'm at a point in my career that just helping blockchain entrepreneurs change the world and transition every payment system, all of the world's investing infrastructure, moving it all to a digital model, I think that would be a big, big positive outcome. I've already mentioned a second passion is how do we move to a clean energy, a world of clean energy. I think I don't spend a lot of time on that, but I think that's the second. And then the third is I've got five kids of my own, and I'd love to see them all very happy and very successful in whatever it is they want to do. So I think those are the main three things I'm focused on. In prioritized order? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. <laughs> in reverse, reverse prioritized order. <laughs> Matthew, that was really fun. Thank you for joining us. I'm very much looking forward to meeting you in person and looking forward to stay in touch. Thank you very much. And I hope this was useful for your community. Absolutely. Thanks a million. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.